Now, you'll know if you've been around for a while. Um, if you don't know me, my name's Tom. I'm the vicar, rector, and you'll know that our previous leader, Mick, retired at the end of summer. And uh, things have gotten slightly less professional these days, folks. So this was me communicating to Sam Watson halfway through. Communion after the talk. There you go. So if he looked phased slightly, uh, he was a true professional and carried on. So there you go. So Sam, thank you so much. And my humble apologies to you, brother, but you did amazing. Well, I think it will, it'll fit to do communion after the talk. Hopefully that will all make sense. So folks, we are looking at a new series, The Practice of Neighboring, Taking Simple Steps. And we're just going to dive straight in today. If you've got a Bible with you, if you would open it up, please. If you're going to, maybe you've got it on your phone. Personally, I just still love to hold books. Do you know what I mean? This whole Kindle thing, it won't catch on. Actually, it has caught on, hasn't it? But um, I'm still embracing the last century. I still haven't quite finished yet. So there you go. And we're looking at uh, Luke chapter 10. And we're looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan. And this is a kind of slightly turning moment, really, in some of Jesus' teachings, where he's beginning to tackle what it is to be a life of a disciple, to be a life of a follower of Jesus. In my Bible, a lot of this is in red, which means it's the very words of Jesus. So we're going to read this through together, the parable of the Good Samaritan. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. Have you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, poured on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, I think it was Mark Twain who once said, it's not the difficult bits of the Bible that are challenging, but it's the simple bits. Oh, folks, this is one of those simple bits, isn't it? Crikey. It packs an absolute punch. So here is Jesus beginning to speak, as he has been about the inauguration of the kingdom, demonstrating it, bringing in its power as he's speaking. And a lawyer is tagging along. 
He's a lawyer. He's an expert in the Old Testament law. And he strikes up a conversation with Jesus, most um, really probably trying to trick him, trying to, trying to find out, is Jesus flaky? Can he sign the statement of faith? So I'm just going to ask him some very, uh, if you're a lawyer, Jesus loves you, by the way. You're wonderful people. And <laughs> God bless you. But he's, he's, he, he's an expert in the law. And for us to really understand what that means to be a kind of theologian or theological expert, it's really to be a lawyer. And so he is totally immersed in the Old Testament law. He knows everything there is to know about the Old Testament law. It's a bit like when you're doing a talk and you have a bishop in your congregation or you have a theologian in your congregation. Because you, when you start to throw out the Greek and you're not entirely sure, you think they probably know. And they probably realize that my pronunciation is absolutely terrible and my definitions are off Wikipedia. They're going to find me out. Not that that ever occurs to me at any time, folks, honestly. But here's the moment where the lawyer is looking to trick Jesus. He's trying to, to, to ask him a very, very, very simple question, but behind it is really very, very revealing. But Jesus, of course, is a genius at dealing with these kind of people. So he asks another question and says to the lawyer, what is the summation of 700 laws. What is the sum total of it? And the lawyer says this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, your strength, and your mind. Heart. Heart often in the Bible is the, the seat of decision-making. It's the whole of our emotions. It's our deepest convictions. That's what the lawyer says to Jesus. To love God is our deepest sense of conviction with our soul, our immaterial part of our body, with our mind, our ability to reason and to understand, and strength, how we use all of our abilities for God. The lawyer's on the money. He knows his onions, which is a Greek word. It's a joke. And then he says, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So in the same way that we tend our own needs, I've had breakfast this morning, I've had a wash, just in case you were wondering, <laughs> I've attended to my own needs, as all of us no doubt have done. And then he says that we're to love God with everything, but then we're to, to love our neighbor with exactly the same love and care that we show for ourselves. And then the lawyer, because he is so smart, thinks, well, he's on the ropes. He's right. And so then says, well, who is my neighbor then? Because that's a matter of some interpretation. If you're familiar with any of the writings by Timothy Keller, who, if you've ever seen him, has a wonderful haircut like me. He is said to be the modern-day C.S. Lewis. He's an incredible writer. And he says that what the lawyer is trying to do is he's trying to justify why he is okay. It's self-justification. We often in the church talk about sin, and sin's a bit of a, it's a bit of a, it's seen as a bit of a negative word. It's essentially the, 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 the part of us which seeks to forge out an identity apart from God. And that then has a result in how we behave. But if it's root cause, it's living a life without acknowledgement or knowledge or in reference to God. 
And what happens in this moment is this enormous issue because we often, in our human nature, when it comes to understanding neighborhood, we kind of find ourselves in the same position as the lawyer because it's very simple to do three things. Limit the who. So often we are drawn to love people who are like us. Secondly, limit the when. We like to love people when we think they deserve it. And we like to limit the how much, when is it really convenient. What about if our neighbours slightly annoy us? We have new neighbours, moved in April. And behind our house is a kind of private driveway. Now I say private driveway, don't be thinking we're fancy or anything. It's a row of garages, folks. Okay? It's none of these fancy estates, just to, just to clarify. And we have some fantastic neighbours. They're very laid back. They've lived in London. But we won't hold that against them, folks. They're very welcome. And occasionally, they'll park their car about two foot over what is our bit of the property. Actually, it's not our property because it's the Baptist manse. But on behalf of the Baptists, we sometimes feel that we take up a slight umbrage because they've parked slight. And occasionally, my wife, God bless her, who sat at the back, has said, do you think I need to go around and point out to them we generally only park behind our bit of the house? So do we love our... And I said, no, Clarissa. She's brilliant at feedback, but I thought, I think we're going to do a whole series on neighbouring. I don't think you should go around and tell them not to park behind the house because that's not going to go down well, my love. So do we love people when it's convenience or where we think they deserve it? What if they get under our skin? What if they play music loud? What if they take substances that we don't agree with? What if they have a lifestyle that is totally different to our own? Are we like the lawyer who's looking for the clause which says, do I really need to do this? And then Jesus answers in a way that Jesus does and he tells a story and it's so powerful. And he describes a journey that a man takes through a road from Jerusalem to Jericho. I've taken that road. It is about 17 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho. It has a phenomenal drop down towards the Dead Sea. It's very rocky and it is very, at that time, was incredibly dangerous. In fact, actually now, if you were to be not in an air-conditioned car, you could probably die. It is so hot. It is such a rugged place. And the particular point on the journey is known at the time as the Pass of Blood. It was notoriously violent and notoriously dangerous. And a man is lying in the road. He's had lots of, he's been robbed. He's in a really bad way. And a priest walks past, no doubt, going to the temple to do his stuff. And a Levite walks past. Now, a Levite is like a, a kind of assistant to the priest. But they're both people who one would expect to intervene. And they don't. And they walk past. When Martin Luther King translates this, when he preached on this the day before he was assassinated, he says this, they are driven by a sense of fear. Because if they stop to help, here's the thing, the guy is not dead, which means most probably he's only just been attacked, which means that the robbers and the violent people are still in the area. It could be a trap. So as you go and help this guy, the robbers could come and get you. Or it could be that, that they're in the vicinity, if they see you helping, they'll come and get you, you just don't know why. And so what kicks in most probably for the priest and the Levite is a sense of, just a natural sense of fear, a desire to preserve themselves, asking the question, what about me? If I do this, will I be next? The Samaritan comes along and he asks the question, what about him? 
Now, Samaritans, when we think of Samaritans, we think those people that you call if you're in a bad way. But the Samaritans are a race, the time Jesus is talking about for years and years and years have been, have these very deep hostilities with the Jewish people. I mean, there is deep, deep, deep hostilities. There is an absolute hatred rooted in deep racism. If a Samaritan saw a Jew, they would do nothing, if in that situation, by rights, would do nothing to help them. When I was thinking about this, I was mindful of the time. Clarissa and I lived in London years and years and years and years ago. And I remember catching a tube, a tube kind of the underground, about a month after the 7-7 bombings. Now, the 7-7 bombings, are very, they were devastating. I still remember the sirens that living in that time. It was, it was a crazy time to be particularly anywhere but living in London. Two weeks later, there was a, a failed attempt uh, to, to, to blow up more tube trains. So two weeks after, month after, things were incredibly tense, particularly if you caught the underground. I remember being on a tube train once, and a guy got on who was clearly a Muslim, a very devout Muslim, and he sat opposite me on the tube. People got up and walked away to other ends of the carriage. There's just me and this guy, and I thought, I can't get up and move. The fear was palpable on that tube. The sense of hatred for this guy who looked terrified. That's not a good look to look terrified and be sweating slightly, but you could feel the sense of people, uh, their looks burrowing into this guy who was sat there, unfortunately, clutching a rucksack. It was not a good look, to be fair, at that time. The sense of, of hatred and fear and anxiety is exactly the kind of context that Jesus is describing as the Samaritan walks along. It's as if your most hated enemy it is just inconceivable. The person that you most dislike, the person that, that for you conjures up everything that you dislike, the person who does not like your values, that's the story that Jesus is describing. It's like the terrorist coming to somebody to, to bind wounds, to look after the individual. The Samaritan is despised and hated by Jews. There is deep racial hostility and tension. And the Samaritan does three things. Firstly is this, he attends his most immediate needs. So he physically gets down and cares for him. He touches him. A Samaritan would never touch a Jew, make the Jew unclean. He cares for his wounds. It's deeply inconvenient and it's deeply risky. The second thing is, as he touches him, he lifts him and places him on his animal, takes him off to the inn. And the third thing is, he covers his medical bills. Now, by taking him to the inn, things like he's taking him for a lock-in session and drink away his troubles. No, the inn was a place where you would, you would do what you do in an inn, but also it's a place that would offer hospitality, care, seek all your needs, look after you. So he's been incredibly sacrificial and he's been incredibly generous. And he doesn't put a limit on that generosity and say, look, I'll pay up until this amount. What he says to the innkeeper is, I'll come, back to, I'll come back later, and whatever other costs I've incurred, I will cover those costs. So he essentially gives the innkeeper a blank check and says, do what you need to do. 
It's the most amazing, it's the most amazing, incredible act of generosity from one hostile party to another. And Jesus says this is a definition of what it is to be a neighbor. And it is, folks, both awesome and depressing in equal measure. It is awesome because it is just the character and heart of God. It's slightly depressing because you just think, yeah, but I get really annoyed if like they park two foot over what is I think is my boundary line. I'm a million miles away, Jesus, from this kind of heart, and we'll come to that in just a moment. Neighboring has been defined like this. The call on every disciple to meet the needs of those around them, whether they are believers or not. Let me just say this. The call, neighboring is this, the call on every disciple to meet the needs of those around them, whether they are believers or not. And I want to say this, folks, and I want to say, and I... And as much clarity as I can, it is absolutely obvious that Jesus proclaims the kingdom of God with signs and wonders and spoken word and proclamation. We cannot dispute that. It is clear to me that as the early church advances, it is through the proclamation of the word of God. Amen? <laughs> Just checking you're with me. You look very serious under your masks, but I'm sure you're smiling. So it's absolutely clear that in the, there is a proclamation of the gospel. As a card-carrying evangelical, apologies, that's not a term that people like to use these days, but that is me, folks. Card-carrying evangelical, charismatic, I absolutely affirm the proclamation of Jesus in his fullness, in his divinity, in his power. Absolutely. Amen. Thank you, church. Oh, we're getting there. Thank you. <laughs> However... Paul tells us to do the work of an evangelist. There's no getting off that hook, folks. No matter however much you try to wriggle off it, there is the call to do it. There is the call to, to describe to those we know why it is we're hopeful and to talk about Jesus. But Jesus also advocates that we are to practice neighboring, which essentially means this, the call on every disciple is to meet the needs of those around them, whether they believe that or not. And folks, I think sometimes we've separated them out. We've elevated one above the other. Not necessarily deliberately, but we've made one slightly more spiritual than the other. Oh, you, you help food bank. Oh. Well, we go out in the streets and we tell people about Jesus. Okay, yeah, we, we go out and we do this and we do that. But do you know your neighbours? <laughs> no, but that, that's not really important because we're on the streets and that's like where it happens. Yeah, but do, do you know the names of the people you live with? Yeah, no, 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 you don't get it. We're doing the real stuff because this is the real stuff. This is what Jesus does. Well, hang on a minute. He also tells us to do this bit here where we may not get a return on investment, that well-known biblical concept taken straight from some kind of management manual, passaged off as some kind of gospel principles. We have elevated one above the other folks. Here, I think, are three potential barriers that we need to think through over these next five or six weeks, however it is we're, we're looking at this season, what it is to be a neighbour. Because if we're going to love our city well... It will invariably mean you and I 
talking to people about Jesus. Of course it does. But it will also invariably mean becoming the best neighbours we can be. Here are three things I think we need to think about in this next couple of weeks. Three barriers, perhaps, sorry. Three barriers that I think we need to think about or challenge. Firstly is this. We see this story only as a metaphor. We see this story only as a metaphor. So we justify being a neighbour by certain things that we do. Or we say, right, we're going to join the RNLI. After this week, I think they need our support. Or maybe you choose a political party, which is all right, and we should be active in those things. And maybe we justify our political association as a type of neighbouring. Maybe we give financially to the poor. Maybe we are motivated by good conscience and we want to make things better. But we don't take it literally, which means do we actually physically know the people who live next door to us? Do we? The second thing is this. We see it as a task. This is a real issue for our church specifically, folks. We see it as a task. We see our neighbours as evangelism projects. So we talk to them at Christmas, Easter, and when we want to invite them on Alpha. But perhaps we don't darken their doors at any other time. Because behind it, we are always looking for a return on investment. And that is not what Jesus is describing in this story. We don't know whether the Samaritan sees a return on his investment. We just see that there is lavish, lavish grace upon grace on somebody who doesn't deserve it. That, folks, is me. And you know, guys, when we only go to people when they want something, they can feel like projects. If we love them, week in, week out. There's a man called Eric Swanson who said this. Some of you may find this offensive. I think it's challenging. We don't love to convert people. We love people because we are converted. And finally, we're always waiting for the perfect opportunity. Maybe we live in temporary housing. I was amazed when Clarissa and I left London to move to Theological College and we didn't know our neighbours above. We knew they had a crazy black dog and you could hear it running around the floor. Used to, why they lived in a flat and pretty much close to central London, I don't know. But anyway, you could hear the dog going crazy. I passed them occasionally in the corridor. The people underneath, we knew they had a young baby. We didn't know them, we didn't connect with them. And then on our moving out day, they were happened to be out moving out at the same time. We had a conversation and actually probably had more in common than we realised. And the reason we didn't connect there is because we were only there for a year. And if we're going to take the words of Jeremiah seriously, we've been tracking when we met at Philly, it talks about being planted. So maybe you're in temporary housing and you just think, oh, I'll just wait. Or maybe you've bought a house and you think, well, I'm going to wait till I get to my forever house. And when I get to my forever house, then I'll make neighbours because then everything will be perfect. Maybe start today. And then we're going to think about some simple steps. What it is to be inconvenienced. A couple of uh, months ago, 
Uh, we, we got on really well. We were so blessed where we live. Um, we had some amazing neighbours, and we share a pathway up and down. And uh, we, like good Sheffield folks, we use our kitchen door to come in and out. Um, and so we all would have regular contact with our neighbours, Patrick and Caroline. Just amazing people. And we were absolutely gutted when they told us that they were moving house. Because we were moving house as well. We are on a couple, about next month or so. But they, they got out first. And so when it came to them moving on their moving out day, they're pretty chilled out people. I think on Myers-Briggs, using the P, you know, they're pretty chilled. And so we went out to, uh, we ended up helping them move out of their house for a long a variety of reasons. Uh, uh, particularly when, when Patrick came around and said, can we store one or two boxes in your garage? Yeah, okay, that's not, not a problem. So we create some space in the garage. Our garage, as my wife will testify, is not neat, not as neat and tidy as she would like it to be. That's my domain, that's my fault. So we created a space, and then it really became very clear that one or two boxes was about like 10 or 20 boxes, and all of a sudden, it starts to fill and fill and fill. So we're thinking that there's a stress level that we've never seen in these guys. Let's help them out. So we're helping out. Now, that morning, I'd had a potential skin cancer removed from my face. Turned out not to be skin cancer, praise Jesus. It was a lesion. I don't know what they are, but all I know is it wasn't skin cancer, praise Jesus. So I'd had some scarring, um, a big plaster, and every time I lifted a box, I could feel it pulling as the anesthetic was wearing off. But, but we, we helped out anyway, and I think I was a little fuzzy in the head, but who knows? So we're helping, we're helping, we're putting more stuff in the garage, and I'm thinking, I don't know if we're going to be able to access any of our stuff, because their one or two boxes is multiplying at a rate of knots. So, but we want to be good neighbours, so we say, we're glad of it, bring your boxes, fantastic. And then there's another knock at the door, would you mind having a suitcase? We said, yeah, sure, we'll have a suitcase. Well, the suitcase turned out to be a dog bed. It turned out to be a variety of things. It turned out to be a vacuum cleaner. And in fact, we had more of their clothes in our bedroom than we had of our own clothes. They were piled in the corner with the most Patrick's most amazing 70s leather jacket that I did say, if you didn't come and collect it, I would put it on eBay. It was this strange moment where it was slightly inconvenient. And if I'm honest, I thought, my wife is going to have a fit here. This is, this is not planned. This is not cool. But we took it in because we could see that they just needed us to help them. And you know, in the bigger picture of life and death, storing somebody's 70s piles of their clothes, storing their stuff, it was a pleasure. As we go forward, folks, there's a couple of things we're, we're, gonna, we're, we're looking at this practice of neighbouring. What does it look like for us to become part of our lives that we get to know, to live, get to know the people who live around us? First of all, each week we're going to ask a question. What's the, what's the simple steps? We're looking at simple steps. Number one is get to know people's names. I've drawn a map of my, our street. Here's one I made earlier. Look at that, folks. I mean, that is professionalism right there, isn't it? That's why, that's why you pay your tithe for this level of professionalism, folks, isn't it? Absolutely. There you go. And so I drew, drew out um, the houses. I should have been an architect or a town planner. I think I've missed my vocation in life. And I wrote in people's names. And do you know what? It was actually harder than I realized to write in people's names because I know that bloke who's got the dog. 
down there. All right, mate, how are you doing? How's the dog? Right. So I know the name of his dog, and he knows the name of my dog, but what's his name? And so, so I started to write them out. I was thinking, oh, that's Tom and Veronica. That's Jim and Ruth, and that's Eric and Linda and Ben. Stephen died. Oh, that's a family with a dog. Yeah, I know, what they, I know what car they've got. I know he's retired. What's his name? I don't know. And then there's the other side, the posh side of the road, if the, if the foxes are watching. Uh, that's the other side, the breakers, that's the posh side. And I realized there's quite a few question marks. So my challenge over the next couple of weeks is this, get to know people's names. Why? Because when you pray for them, it's easier. The Lord knows that bloke with the dog. Wouldn't it be amazing if we know their names? Because their, name their names are precious, they're precious, they were given a name, and I don't know it. So number one is... Get to know people's names. Number two this week is pray for our neighbours. You might think, oh, another thing we've got to do. Well, you know, as you're walking out your house, because I'm guessing you leave your house at some point because you're all here. So as you're walking perhaps to work or you're going to the shop, you say, Lord Jesus, bless John. Bless Mabel. Bless Phil. Or maybe when you're driving, Lord, bless this street, pray blessing and life. And if you want to know what to pray for, read something by Roy Godwin's Grace Outpouring. Pray, pray blessing and life. And I would say this, folks, just draw a little map. You don't have to put a tick box off of when they're being conv- convicted in the spirit and they fall down at night or they've been deeply convicted of their sins. You can do that if you want. But just begin to get names and begin to pray. So, folks, what do we, how do we do all this stuff? And we're going to... Jump into communion right now. What is the source of all this stuff? Here's the truth, folks. You and I have been, if you know Jesus, you know his grace in your life. Someone has neighbored you. Someone has drawn alongside you and loved you. For me, I hated school. It was a source of utter hatred, really. I hated it. It was horrible. I I just couldn't cope with it. I was bullied. I was a Christian. And that won me very little friends in my secondary school. And then I met a group of people. My parents were, were... but my parents raised me in the faith, but I hadn't really connected with a church family. And one day a friend took me to a youth group where Sam Watson, leading was his parents were youth leaders. And I was neighboured. Some people dusted me down, loved me, gave me hope. Somebody included me and embraced me. They didn't take me to an inn. I wasn't lying naked on the side of the road on the way to Warsaw. Praise God, that would have been difficult. But somebody drew close. The kid who was bullied mercifully in the PE changing rooms, some guys loved on me like I meant something. From the heart of Jesus, and I fell in love with Jesus, I fell in love with his church. Somebody neighbored me. And I'm guessing most of us here have a story. If you don't, I'd love to talk to you today about Jesus, about somebody neighboured you when you were far from him. And so, folks, there could be people right next to us coming out of this pandemic 
who are desperately lonely may look like they've got it all together, drive the nicest car, but their lives are falling apart, just waiting for somebody to go around with a cake and say, hey, this is awkward, but I know we've lived next to each other for like 25 years, but I don't actually know your name. Here's a cake and just start a conversation. And who knows, as we surrender our lives to Jesus, we get stuck into the source of grace, which is him. Who knows what the Holy Spirit might do in this next couple of weeks, folks?